0: So here, now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke. Reading from the 11th chapter, we are going to be reading verses 24 through 28. Here now the very words of our Lord. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And may the Lord bring these words alive for us this morning and apply them to our hearts. Let's ask him for that illumination. Our dear Lord, as we sort of wrap up a a section here on spiritual warfare, I, I pray that we will make it all the way through this passage, that we will truly understand the parable that Jesus is teaching, and specifically and especially how it applies to us. Not not just applying to those who don't know you, but especially to those who do. And how, what the ramifications are will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oddly enough, um, over the last three weeks, three sermons... And all of those sermons, by the way, have dealt with spiritual warfare. I have started out with a quote from C.S. Lewis, and I didn't plan it that way. It's just just the way that it happened. And this morning's quote comes from perhaps his best known book. It's called *Mere Christianity*. It was a a sort of a compilation of some radio broadcasts that occurred right during the middle, right in the thick of World War II when England was being bombed. And they put these broadcasts on the BBC to encourage the people of London. And and this is what he said, and, and I've redacted it a little bit, uh, so it's not a complete statement. His complete statement would be far too long. But, but let me just read these parts that are very relevant to our discussion this morning. He writes uh, this. He says, it is easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects, education, building, missions, holding services, etc., etc., But in reality, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men and women into Christ and to make them little Christs. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, all the clergy, all the missions, all the sermons, etc. are simply a waste of time. Let me see if I can sort of add to that to put it even deeper into the context of what I want to talk about this morning. We talked last week about Christ's cosmic initiative. And we looked at the 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 advent, the coming to earth, almost as if it was a military like uh, operation, where the world, uh, the third planet from the sun, our planet is the silent planet in the hands of a, a a wicked and an evil warlord, as as Lewis said, the bent one, and cut off from the rest of the universe that was praising God, but in this place uh, there was evil that was in place, and Jesus came here with sort of a two-prong initiative, two objectives. One was to destroy evil. And we made this clear last week. Jesus did not come to this planet to make an alliance with evil, to get along with evil, to make a peace treaty with evil. He came specifically to destroy it. And, and, And then as part of that, to set free those souls that were his ...that were in bondage to the powers of darkness... ...to lead a string of captives back to heaven with him... ...to present him as his purified and glorified bride... ...before his father so that we can worship him forever and ever. That's the initiative. Now, when Jesus came and he he started this initiative... And then when he left, that wasn't the end of it. You you see, Jesus went back to be with his father and he left his apostles as the ones to carry forward the, the initiative. And the apostles made disciples and then they carried forth the initiative. And all throughout the two millennia that the church has been in place since then, this initiative continues and we are involved with the exact same initiative. Now, those who have gone before us, including the apostles and the original disciples, well, they're all in their reward. They're in glory, what the reformers used to call the church triumphant, the church as it will be forever, the church in heaven that will glorify God forever and ever. But those of us who remain, those of us who are alive now, those of us who are on this planet, they refer to as the church militant or the church at war. Now, I emphasized last week, and I'll reemphasize it this week, that we're not talking about a physical war. We're not talking about physical aggression. We're not talking about any kind of persecution or oppression, whether it be mental or emotional or social or political or any way that that, that, that could be played out. We are talking about a spiritual battle on a spiritual plane. And it is a battle for the souls of men and women. And it is an epic one, and it rages all around us. Now, towards that end, we already know who wins this battle, right? (laughs) We know where Jesus came from, and we know that he is God in the flesh, and so we know who wins it, and we we know what happens to the devil, because Revelation tells us, but the devil is brilliant. He is diabolically, nefariously brilliant. And so, knowing that he's outgunned, Knowing that he cannot stand against Jesus, knowing that he has no power over a redeemed heart that now is the receptacle and the living place of the Holy Spirit of God. He knows that he cannot stand against that and so he has developed this most diabolical of countermeasures to subvert, to pervert, to corrupt the gospel. To change it in such a way that he can lead so many people astray, even people within the church. Convincing them that oh no Jesus is sort of ancillary he's sort of sidelined. What you really need is to be a good person to replace a salvation that is a true transformation with a salvation that is only a reformation. And the way we usually use that term in a in a good sense, but this morning to be a reformation simply means to clean up your life. But that is a lie. That is a horrible lie. And so many people fall into it thinking that all I've got to do is be a good person and follow these rules and keep those Ten Commandments and go to church and do all these things. And I'm going to walk into heaven and God is going to say, Wow, what a wonderful life you lived. Come on into my kingdom. That is the most heinous lie. Because that will never happen. There is only one name by which you are saved. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. No other way. And so therefore, Satan has created this evil, diabolical countermeasure. And first of all, today we're going to identify that countermeasure. We're going to look at it for what it is. And then secondly, we're going to ask ourselves, how on earth do we defend ourselves against this? And so if you were here last week, you know that I went into sort of a lengthy context, took you all the way back to the beginning of Luke, and I wanted to get your minds in a groove. I don't have time to do that this morning. If you're here and you're interested... You may want to go back and look at that sermon or listen to it on the uh, on the internet because there's it, it a lot of groundwork there. But let me go ahead and just give you a sketchy overview. I mean, we, we noticed that Luke really did, from the very beginning of his gospel, show us that this is a cosmic initiative. And we're going to look at it from heaven's perspective. Jesus taking on the attributes of a human, entering space and time. Well, at his nativity, we saw that. When the angels, the heavenly hosts, the, literally the armies of heaven, came down, the Shekinah glory of God showing all around, and they made a pronouncement. <laughs> Satan, your time of absolute control of this world is over. Okay, the king is here. The savior is here. The anointed one is here. The Messiah is here. Well, that continued on into the desert where he tried to tempt him with the kingdoms of this world. And then we learned that great parable of the sower where most of the soil and the field is hostile to the gospel and the demons are there to snatch up the seeds. And then we saw a, a, a perfect illustration of the cosmic initiative as Jesus gets into a boat, goes to the other side, enters a defiled, scary Gentile graveyard with demon-possessed men and cast the demons out. That's what Jesus came to do, to destroy evil, not to make an alliance with it. And then we saw as he passed that off first to the apostles, as he gave them the same power and sent them out, and then to the 72 when he sent them out, and they came back saying, even the demons obey us when we cast them out in your name. And that's when Jesus said, I am watching the skies. And I am watching as Satan just falls like lightning from heaven. Soul here, soul there. He's losing control because I have come to set the captives free. Which brought us up to this discussion, if you will, uh, of that demonic force. Jesus is casting out a demon, which he normally does. And and someone in the crowd or people in the crowd say, well, he cast out demon by the power of Beelzebub." who's a code name for satan and a derogatory term it means probably lord of the dung heap but jesus using that pristine logic <laughs> say <said>, that's ridiculous <laughs> if satan cast out satan he's a house divided and a house divided it falls and, and impl- excuse me implicitly he's saying satan's kingdom is anything but divided you need to recognize something that the kingdom of evil is monolithic and it is it is all on the same page. And, and that's the reason that, that that sanctification is so important. But then he gave us a proverb that we looked at. And, and that proverb was that, you know something, let me explain to you what I'm here for. And, and the proverb simply said that if a strong man has power, he has the armies, he has his armament behind him and he trusts in that. And, and he guards his palace. And and he makes sure that he protects his goods, his stuff, with a ferociousness. You see, Satan is on the defensive because the strong man was Satan. The palace is the world. The goods that he's protecting are the souls that he thinks are his that Jesus has come to set free. And Jesus says when someone stronger than he comes along and, and, and he attacks him, And he overwhelms him. And he strips him of that armor and then plunders his house. That's exactly what I've come to do. That's the cosmic initiative. I have come to destroy evil, to destroy the strong man and to set the captives free. And then in that great verse that he ended that up with, after he makes it clear that this is a spiritual battle of epic proportions, he turns to the people and he says, whoever is with me, not with me, is against me. There's no neutral ground. There's no middle ground. You can't be a nominal once in a, a while Christian. You're either in or you're out. You're either with me or you're against me. You're either collecting with me or you're scattering. And that is going to be oh so important this morning that we remember that because we're going to see what happens to the neutral house, if you will. Now, with that said, Jesus is going to wrap this up with... A parable of sorts. Because as I said, I mean, it's very clear in that last proverb that he gave us what his intentions are. I am the strong man. I have come to attack. That's the language of conquest. Again, spiritual conquest. I have come to not only destroy evil, but to set the captives free. Evil, meaning the devil, his demons, his network, those who follow him with the mark of the beast, sin and death. I mean, that's what Jesus came to destroy. And that's what he did destroy. Now we're going to see this devious, diabolical countermeasure that that Satan does. See, he knows he's outgunned. He knows that he has absolutely no power over Jesus. In fact, we go back to the third chapter of of Genesis. What do we learn there just before the fall? That he is the craftiest of all the creatures. That he is brilliant. That he recognizes he knows our weakness and he knows how to make us fall something we're going to look at at the after church, I don't have time to go into it uh, now, is what Revelation tells us about this. Uh, uh, When when Jesus, the Lamb, begins to open up the seals that John sees, and the first four of those seals are four apocalyptic horsemen, and they come out to destroy, and the first one is a Jesus lookalike. The first one is a false gospel that comes, and it goes right behind the gospel to confuse, to pervert, to corrupt the gospel, to turn it into a gospel that cannot possibly save you. That's his devious, diabolical countermeasure. I'm going to sell you on something that you're going to think that you're good. You're going to think that you're right with God, but you're not. You're still mine. Because there's only one way that you can be saved, and that is through Christ. So with that said, let's jump into this, and let's see exactly what Jesus is saying. Verse 24, as he sort of shares this, um, this, uh, 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 it's a parable of sorts. Share this parable with us. He starts out by saying, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. Okay, now an unclean spirit, we know, is just an evil spirit. It's a demon, okay? And and Jesus would quite often call it an unclean spirit. Well, he says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a person, and I think that recognizing the defensive nature of Satan, the fact that he is ferociously guarding his prey, that which he thinks he owns, uh, I, I think we can, we can assume that this, this demon's not going to just leave the person for no reason. He's it, not just gonna say, okay, you know, that person doesn't want me around anymore, I'm unwelcome, so I think I'll leave. That, that, that's not the way evil works. So I basically think there are probably more, but I'm going to give you three reasons that are relevant to this morning's discussion of how a demon might leave a person in this way. Three types of exorcisms, if you will. The first one would almost be a self-exorcism, where for whatever reason, the person decides they want to clean up their life, that for one reason or another, they need to get religion, they need to get back in relationship with God or some way to get uh, with a higher power. And so they, they, they begin to be concerned about their behavior. Now, the reasons for this could be many. Sometimes it's because people have a near-death experience. Uh, they get really sick, and that kind of wakes them up of their own mortality, or someone close to them passes away, and that sort of brings it home that this is a very short-lived life. Or Perhaps it's because they responded to an altar call and a very emotional um, service and things were just right and they walked down the aisle and they accepted Christ and everybody told them that they were saved. But yet then when the emotion leaves, they're left sort of hollow, not knowing what to do next. Or perhaps they fall in love with someone like a man falling in love with a woman and the woman's not going to have anything to do with him unless he's a Christian. And unfortunately, I've had actually men say this to me. I, 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 I didn't accept Christ as my savior. I became a Christian so I could get close to my wife. And so they, they get religion. They, they, they For whatever reason, they say, I'm going to clean up my life. Now, why would a demon leave that person voluntarily? Jesus has made an argument. He's already said, Satan's not going to cast out Satan. But why would a demon, if it was a self self exorcism, and you know we can substitute in a more modern context, sinfulness, the old sinful nature, as far as a demon, that which holds us bondage, and we're all slaves to sin. But why would a demon do that unless they were saying, "Well, this is actually good for me." This actually falls right into the diabolical countermeasure. In other words, I'm going to give this person enough rope to hang themselves. I'm going to let them get righteous. I'm going to let them get smug. I'm going to let them clean up their life and feel that they're right with God. And then we'll see what happens when that happens. That's the first reason that I think that a demon would, would leave someone. The second one would be a phony exorcism of sorts. You may remember that Jesus, when he was making that pristine argument about why Satan wouldn't be casting out himself, and he says, well, if I am casting out Satan by the power of Beelzebub, then who are your sons casting the demons out by Now, remember, when we looked at that, we we realized that, well, we can't, it's impossible for us to know whether or not they were really casting out demons or whether they just thought they were. But but nonetheless, there was a perceived exorcism there. Well, this is the one case, I think, where Satan would be more than happy to be exorcised, to be cast out. Because in other words, some charlatan, who doesn't know Christ at all, comes and says, I've got the power of casting out demons and brothers and sisters. There have been plenty of them throughout the millennia of the church, and there's plenty of them walking around today. So I've got the power over the spirits, and you cast out a spirit. Well, a demon says, fine, I'm going to leave this person. I'm going to make a big show of it to validate them so that people will follow a false prophet. And so gladly, they come out of the person, and, and they give him a free line to, once again, Hanging themselves to to get righteous, to, to, to find religiosity. We call it moralism. It's a moralistic approach to religion. I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to be good because now my demon is gone. The third type of exorcism is the kind of exorcism that Jesus is doing. The kind of exorcism that he gave to his apostles to do. The kind of exorcism that the 72 were involved with and all those in that time of prophetic, of of apostolic gifts were doing. And now, when, when Jesus regenerates a heart and sin and the devil and death is gone from that regenerated, transformed heart, well, that is a true exorcism. And when that happens, there's no place for the demon to come back. And I'll explain why. That's a hugely significant point. We'll get to that a little bit later. But anyway, those first two, those first two reasons that a demon would leave the person, I think are very important to what happens next because they're going to set about a moralistic religiosity to try to get close, acceptable in God's eyes by doing good. Well, Let's see what happens as that. The demon passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. Now, if you were living in Jesus' day and he said waterless places, what would be the first thing that would come to your mind? Desert. You live in the midst of some of the driest deserts on the planet. So all of them are going to think about a desert. Now, Granted, a desert in those days was considered to be the haunt of demons, but I think more what he's talking about is the fact that in a desert, we as human beings have a need for water. And if we are in a waterless place, we can't live. Eventually, we'll just shrivel up and die. So when the demon, I think we learned something about demons here. When a demon is not in a host, they go to waterless places. They need a host. They need someone to work through. That's where they do their nefarious evil deeds in this world. And so therefore they, they, in a waterless place, they're in a place where they're going to be unproductive and they need to, they can't stay there. They may pass through it for a while. They may meet their buddies there but they don't stay there because they're looking for a host. Now, this particular demon goes through waterless places. He doesn't find anyone to corrupt or anyone that is a welcome, a reciprocal place for him to go. So what does he do? He says, I will return to my house from which I came. Don't miss the possessive pronoun, my. Don't miss that. Because even though the demon left him and went through waterless places... It's still his house. That person still belongs to him. That person never was transformed. There was never a change. They were never let out of the kingdom of darkness. They are still captives to the bent one. And so there's a, 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 a powerful difference here. Now, the point that we want to make is this no matter how good the Reformation is, no matter how clean the house gets, that a Reformation won't cut it. What is needed is a transformation. What is needed is a regeneration. What is needed, actually, is Christ in the heart. Okay? And we'll see that. Look what happens in the next verse, 25th verse. And when he comes, he finds the house swept and put in order. Beautiful picture here, folks. Apparently this person, without the overwhelming presence of the demon in their lives, and again I'm going back to the first century when Jesus is here, but without the presence of that demon, apparently has made some headway. Uh, apparently has been successful in cleaning up their life a little bit and and their behavior has changed you know they're not cussing as much they're not drinking as much they're not sleeping around as much and so they're proud of what's happened to them they they have cleaned up their life they have swept it up and put it in order Now, of course, in Jesus' day, the prime candidates that he would be talking about would be the Pharisees and the scribes and even the Sadducees and the chief priests. These are the ones who are completely external in their religion. These are the ones who have followed the path of moralism, of religiosity, and that's the way that I'm going to be saved. Now, in our day, it would be a churchgoer. It might be someone who sits in the pew to you, next to you every week. And in fact, it could be a leader of the church. It could be a deacon or an elder or even the pastor himself who is, 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 has formed an external religion. And oh, they look so good on the outside. But Jesus tells us without question what they look like on the inside. That epic 23rd chapter of Matthew. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Later on, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within... You're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. I don't care how squeaky clean you get. You will never be as squeaky clean as a Pharisee. You will never, ever reach that level of righteousness. But Jesus says what? Your righteousness must be greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Our own righteousness is simply not enough. So therefore, moralism doesn't work, folks. Cleaning your life up doesn't work. External religion doesn't work. And so when the demon comes back, he finds the house all swept up, all clean, all put in order. But let me tell you, this is the most important point. Please don't miss this point. It is empty. It's an empty house. It's a vacuum. It's a void. No one has moved into that house, so it still belongs to the demon. So when he returns to that house, there's no one to keep him out. In fact, it's almost like the welcome sign has been put out. And that's exactly what we read next. Look at the 26th verse. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. That word to dwell... It means to move in. It means to take up permanent residence. It means to settle in. Now, previously that demon, you know, he he was willing to leave and, and go through some waterless places to allow this person to begin to feel like they are safe in their own religiosity. But this time he has come to stay. And he's brought seven of his friends with him. That number seven, you you know what that means. It means perfection. It means the ultimate. It means the completeness. And when we talk about seven demons, quite often it was a way to refer to insanity. Mary Magdalene was infested by seven demons and it was a sign of just absolute insanity. And so this is a, a worse state by far. Than it ever was when there was just one demon. Now there's a whole host of demons who come back in, and because the house is empty, even though it's swept in its order, and in an order they just move right back in because there's nothing to keep them at. So, what do you think Jesus means by this? What 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 is he actually saying? I mean, we wouldn't think this, would we? That the second condition is worse than the first. We would we would look at this and we would say, Well, well, at least he's going to church. At, at, at least he's trying to be righteous. At, at, at least he's not out in the gutter drinking like he used to be. At, 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 at least there's this outward appearance, and isn't an outward appearance of religion better than to be a fallen sinner in the street? Well, actually it's not. In fact, the one who cleans up their house through moralism and and religiosity is in a very, very dangerous position because they think they're saved. They think they don't need a savior. And it would be far better if they knew they were a sinner and they knew that their actions eventually would condemn them than to actually think that their own righteousness is going to be able to make them stand before a holy God. Jesus said this over and over again in his ministry. Reading from Luke, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Later on in Luke, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Perhaps the most graphic story is that story where two men went up to the temple to pray. Remember that? A Pharisee and the bottom barrel of scum of the earth, as far as they were concerned, a tax collector. And the Pharisee's over there and he's saying, oh, thank you, God, that I am so good. <laughs> thank you that I tie. Thank you that I, I do all of the righteous things. I keep the law. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this bum over here, this tax collector, this scum who has come in with me. And the tax collector's over there pounding his chest saying, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. It is so much better, brothers and sisters, to be that tax collector, to know that you're lost, to know that you're a sinner, than to be like the Pharisee and think that you're good enough, that you will stand before a perfect and a holy God, and he will say, wow, look at your righteous life. Come on in. That's why Jesus came, so that you could stand before God with his righteousness, not your own. And so therefore, the, the state is worse Than it was before. Well, anyway. Moralism, religiosity plays right into Satan's hand. Plays right into his diabolical countermeasure. This is the way he subverts the gospel. This is the way that he blinds people is to make them feel that they actually do not need a savior. They are reformed, and that's all that's necessary, and they don't understand that what they actually need is transformation, regeneration. Now, Jesus comes to the end of that parable there. And if you're looking at your Bibles, you'll notice more than likely there's a division. There's like a paragraph that they, even some Bibles give you a subheader there and say, now we have a new thought here, leave the old thought behind. I'm so sorry for that because that's just not true. I mean, this thought is so essential to what we just learned because Jesus has actually left us in a precarious position. He has explained to us that, that the devil has a diabolical, brilliant plan to subvert the gospel. To turn it all around, to stop and, and, and to disarm the cosmic initiative. But he hasn't told us how to protect our house. He's told us that if we don't protect our house, if there's not something there to keep the demons out, the demons are gonna come right back in. But he hadn't told us how to keep them out. And that's why it is so essential we don't make a break here. Because there isn't one in the original text. So let's take a look at it, but please resist the urge to think that we have just shifted, that Luke has lost focus, that he's just kind of here and there, you know, willy-nilly putting things in and grabbing them from different sources and putting them in with no concern to how they fit together. Please don't think that of Luke because you'll miss some of the beauty of what he does. So with that in mind, let's take a look at this verse and then I'm going to put it back into the perspective. Now the reason that I can tell you that this belongs at the end of the previous passage is the way it begins. As he said these things, as Jesus is talking about this spiritual warfare, as he describes the the diabolical countermeasure of Satan, as he's saying that, then a woman in the crowd blurts something out. And what she does is a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Now that is actually a very typical Hebrew blessing, a feminine blessing. It would be a blessing that a mother or a female would be more likely to make. And, and it, it, it actually isn't what it seems like it is. It's not a blessing of the woman who actually bore the son. What it is is a reflection of the fact that the greatest recognition that a mother could have in those days would have been the elevated status of her son. And and, and, in other words, she was going to be, she's blessed, but it's actually a blessing on the son. Now, this is something that we saw quite often in Mary's life, Mary, the mother of Jesus' life. You may, may remember when she came before Elizabeth and both women are pregnant and John the Baptist leapt in her womb. She said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You are blessed because of what is in your womb. Well, the angel said the same thing when he told Mary she was going to get pregnant. He said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You are going to be blessed. In fact, in her own Magnificat, that great song that she sings, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So in other words, what the woman says from the crowd and, and just it seems like it's a shift. It seems like where on earth did this come from? Luke, why did you put this here? She says, blessed is the woman who bore you because of who you are. And basically what she is saying is, blessed are you. You are the blessed one. Now, brothers and sisters, let's just back up. I want you to see this. It doesn't hop, hop off the page at you. But Jesus has left us hanging. He has told us that there is this cosmic initiative where we have come and I have come to this world and I am going to destroy evil and I'm going to set the captives free. And then we have learned that there is a devious, diabolical countermeasure that Satan has put in place. But Jesus has not told us how we protect our house. And a woman in the crowd tells us how to protect our house. Blessed are you. You're the blessed one. How do you protect the house? Because if a demon comes back to a house that is empty, he's going to move back in. But if a demon tries to come back to a house where Jesus lives, where the blessed one is, there's not going to be any entrance into that house. In fact, there's a big dog in the front yard and a sign that says, No vacancy. And a flashing sign that says, Demons keep on going by. You're not welcome here. You see, the, the, the big problem with the house that is swept up in an order, the big problem about Reformation, no matter how good it is, is that the house is left empty. When Jesus transforms the heart, he moves into the house. And if you've got Jesus in the house, the demons have no access anymore. So the woman says, blessed are you. And Luke tells us what the answer is to protecting the house. It is Jesus in every corner of it. Well, Jesus is going to comment on what the woman says. Because the woman, you can take what she says to be more of a focus of salvation, Okay? I mean, when Jesus cast out the demon and he occupies the house, there is no way that devil is going to come back. But Jesus says, let's take it to the next level. Because you see, I'm here, I'm going to start this initiative, then I'm going back to my father, and and the, the apostles are going to get it going, and then they're going to come to me, and the church is going to need to continually guard itself against this demon because they're crafty and evil, and they're not going to take no for an answer. They're not going to make it in the front door, but they're sure going to try to get in through the back window, which is your flesh, by the way. So Jesus says this, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, he's not contradicting the woman. A very rare participle, a very rare word in the Greek is used here. It doesn't mean, it's not negation. It doesn't mean, listen, woman, I don't know who you are, but you're absolutely wrong. I'm not the one who is blessing. Let, let, let's talk about something else. No, that's not what it means. What it means is, yes, you're right, but let me add to that. It is yes, but. Let me me develop this a little bit more completely. Yes, absolutely, I am the blessed one. When I'm in the house, the devil has no access. But we're going to see that sometimes our lives are multifaceted. And we need to make sure that Jesus is in every part of that life. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's continue here and just look at the words. Three things he says. Blessed, four things. Blessed, that's our old friend, Makarios, for those of you who have been around here for a while. That's the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it talks about not just a, this is a behavior that you will be blessed if you follow it, but you are in a state of blessedness. So basically what he's saying is the one who is in a state of blessedness is the one who hears the word of God and keeps it both hear and keep are participles in the in the present tense so both of them mean something that is ongoing so basically what he's saying is blessed is the one who keeps on hearing the word of god and keeps on keeping the word of god three words we want to pull out of that first of all what it means to hear now Hearing is not just auditory. It's not just the tickling of the little hairs in your inner ear by sound waves and you put words to them and you, you form some kind of a language. It's far more than that. What it means is to hear and assimilate these words, to accept them, to understand what they mean. And the implication is to accept them as something that is true, to actually truly hear the words. And the keeping of the words means to do them. It means that it's not just an exercise, it, 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 it is a, 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 an application of what you learn. I mean, James said it very clearly in his epistle, he says, don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers also, because the one who hears the word and doesn't do it is like a guy who looks in the mirror and then turns around and forgets what he looks like. And so therefore, Jesus is saying that this is an ongoing thing. Blessed is the one who hears and keeps and don't miss the fact that both of them are talking about the word of God. Now stay with me for one minute. Just stay with me because sometimes the diamonds that we find in scripture are buried beneath the surface. There's been a dramatic shift here. And so dramatic that many people think that Luke has lost focus, but he has not lost focus. Brothers and sisters, let's go back to the 10th chapter. Let's go back to when we're in Martha's house. And Martha is fixing dinner and there's Mary at the feet of Jesus, transfixed on every word that he said. And Martha gets mad and Jesus says to Martha that she is doing the better thing. She's got the better portion. What she is doing will live forever and will never be taken away from her. And so what we realize there is that this was a discussion of sanctification, not just salvation, not just coming to know Jesus, but a sanctifying um, uh, life. And that through that sanctification was coming about through the means of grace. And so first of all, we say, here's Martha, I mean, here's Mary listening, hearing the Word of God. And what is the very next thing that happens? Well, how we do it. What's the most important commandment? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus gives us an illustration of what it means to hear and do the Word. That of the of the, of the the Good Samaritan, where two men come by who certainly knew the Word, but they didn't do it. They weren't uh, um, um, uh, applying it. (laughs) They they weren't implementing it. They just walked on by that man and let him lay in the street. But the man who did the word was a, a hated Pharisee. And then we continued on with the discussion of the means of grace and sanctification and how important it was. And then all of a sudden there was a shift. And we talked about that. Out of the blue there's a shift. Jesus is talking about all this sanctifying grace and all of a sudden he's talking about demons. And what we talked about was that shift was not by accident. Because what Jesus was saying is that the kingdom needs unified, sanctified, battle-ready saints willing to stand against the gathering storm and to plunder the house of the strong man. And that's what he goes in and he tells us sanctification is important for his church because you're up against a unified, monolithic kingdom of evil. And now all of a sudden we switch back again. Again, a dramatic shift. We're talking about spiritual warfare and all of a sudden what are we talking about? Sanctification by the means of grace. Okay, it, it, it's, it's flawless. It, it's masterful in the way that Luke puts this together. Because if we are going to be able to protect the house... That Satan wants back. We're going to have to keep at it, folks. We're going to have to keep at it. Let me back up and see if I can bring this together in one coherent. Our lives are multifaceted. There are many things that we do. And when Jesus saves us, as I said, no vacancy sign goes up. Jesus occupies the house. But I hear way too often people who say this. They say that, well, y- yes, that's important in my spiritual life. I'm a very spiritual person. And, and Jesus, oh, man, he's the Lord of my life. There, And I go to church and I, I do all the things I'm supposed to do at church, but you don't understand my, my career. Uh, this is a bunch of pagans and and, and we're in, a, in a, a rough place and and if they knew I was a Christian if I brought Jesus into my career then my, I'm going to get ostracized I'm going to get persecuted and I may not even get the promotion that I need and over here is my recreation life that I love to do on Sundays that's important that I do that even though the Lord tells us to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy but this is something that, and, and I'm just going to keep Jesus over here in my spiritual life and I don't want him to interfere with my, with, with my recreational life and I don't want him to interfere with my entertainment life I like those movies I realize that they're all about evil I realize that they're all about sex I realize that there is absolutely nothing in those, in those movies that is godly or Christ like but I still like them I need a break and so therefore I, I keep Jesus over here in my spiritual life but I don't need him over here and I don't need him in my relationships sometimes do you understand what's happening here? Yeah, oh yeah, the front door is guarded. Because Jesus is guarding that front door. But you know what you have done? You have left a welcome mat on your back door and left it open. You have left it open so that the, 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 the devil is looking for a toehold any place. Any place that he can find in you to get a toehold. He's going to move back in it even though your salvation is secure. He's, he's looking for your flesh. And let me tell you something. When Satan finds a toehold in you, he doesn't let go, folks. He does not let go. And he, he's never going to steal you, rob you of your salvation. But I tell you what, he can make you ineffective in the work that Jesus has just called you to do. And part of what he says, you're either with me or you are against me. If you're messing around with Satan in five parts of your life, then you're not with me. You're against me. And you've set out a welcome map for Satan to walk right through the front door. Are the back door, as it is. But the same thing that holds true for individuals holds true for the church. It holds true for New Hope Community Church, brothers and sisters. That's the reason that I read you that passage from C.S. Lewis, because that's exactly what C.S. Lewis is talking about. There's, oh, There's all kinds of things we do at the church. And they're all good things. There's, there's things that Christian churches do that are extremely important. We have worship services on Sunday. We sing songs. We have messages that we deliver. We have a school to prepare children to go out into the world. We have an outreach. We have missions. We have a building. We have ir- relationships with people in, 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 the na- in the neighborhood, in the community. All these are important things. But what C.S. Lewis says... If we have lost our first love, if we have lost the reason that we are here, if Christ does not occupy every single corner of this church, we have just given Satan a key to the back door. And that is what happened to the churches of Revelation, folks. Why do you think great churches fail? Why do you think that you can look at some of the greatest churches? Okay, you know, we're in in Scotland years ago. And we're traveling around Scotland, I mean, the land of John Knox, the land of the uh, the birth of Presbyterianism, the land of, I mean, solid Puritan uh, Christians. And there wasn't a, hardly a church that we could find. All these great churches of the Reformation, the Puritan churches, they turned into bars because there was no other use for them. There's probably one of the most atheistic countries in Europe is Scotland. A couple of years ago, actually last year, we are up in New England traveling around looking at some of the great old Puritan churches. And almost every one of them's got a gay pride flag flowing in the front of it. And we're all about gender fluidity. What happened to those churches, folks? Because the, the gospel used to thunder from the pulpits. Those were the Puritans. These were the ones who were bulldogs for the gospel. Well, they must have left a window open for Jezebel to sneak in the back door. They must have left a door unlocked for Balaam to make his way in. You see, because all Satan needs is a toehold, folks. All he needs is just a wee bit. And if we are going to say, you know something, hey, we're all about Jesus in our church on Sunday morning, but hey, we have to negotiate with these people. We, you know, we have insurance, and, and they say we can get 400000 for this claim instead of 100000 which we should get. And that's what the world does. So we need the money here, so let's do it. Hey, we need to build our buildings out there. listen, like everybody else and hire a board of trustees that have a lot of money, but they may not have the same theology that we have. They may not, may not be committed to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if there is any corner in this church that is not filled by Jesus, it is a hole for Satan to make his way into it. And that's how churches fall. We have got to make sure that every corner of this church Just like you have got to make sure that every corner of your life is filled with Jesus. Because if it's not, you're just inviting the devil in. And once he's in, he'll play havoc with you, and he'll play havoc with his church. So I leave you with the words that Brother Will read to us from Isaiah, very relevant. Not all of them, just a few. God speaking through Isaiah says this: A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my co- this is not me, God. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring from this time. Forever more. Brothers and sisters, we keep this church filled with Jesus. Every single aspect of it, the devil has no entry. He'll fight us from the outside, but he has no entry on the inside. We keep our lives filled with Jesus. Every single aspect, every single corner of our life. Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit of Christ in every aspect of the life. There's no part of your life that should not be filled with Jesus. So take out the inventory and take a look at yourself. Where does Jesus live and where doesn't he live? Because any place he doesn't live, you're wide open for evil's diabolical countermeasure. You think about that. Let's pray. Father, we give you the glory. All glory to you. All glory to Jesus. How... Underhanded and evil, our enemy is, and how easy it is for us to fall into his traps. But, dear Lord, sorry, but, dear Lord, we leave it in your hands and we realize that you're the one who is our defense, you are the blessed one. You're the one who fills the house. And, and just help us, Lord, understand that every single corner of that house needs to be filled with you. And, and help us bear it out. The, the parts that we're holding for ourselves are holding away from you are ones that, 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 that we, we don't think are relevant to our Christianity. Lord, let, let, let us not ever think that way. May you permeate all that we are. And may you actually absolutely be in every aspect of this church as well. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.